0: we again welcome Dr. Almita Wright. Her lecture today is No Leaders Here, Lessons from Unlikely Radicals. And for those of you who were not here last night, I will read Almita's bio again for you. She is the Associate Professor of Religious Education at Yale Divinity School. Her research focuses on African-American religion, adolescent spiritual development, and the intersections of religion and public life. Her most recent book is The Spiritual Lives of Young African-Americans. And she also co-edited Children, Youth, and Spirituality in a Troubling World with Mary Elizabeth Moore. Almeida Wright has been an incredible gift. She was to us last night. She will be an incredible gift to us today. And one thing I'll name that she challenged me on once, she probably doesn't remember this, but I was in a small group with her and um, there were some Yale people and some Princeton people together, and that's always a fun time. And the, <laughs> the Princeton people kept talking about um, thinking theologically, and Almita said, that's great. Yes, of course we wanna think theologically, but pedagogy, the way that we teach, what we think about really matters. And so uh, we look to her today as a person who helps us put rubber to the road when we talk about big ideas and when we sit in rooms and think about things. We are looking to her to be a person who helps us really figure out for our ministries where all of this lands. Um, Thank you, Amida, for joining us again today.
1: Good morning. It is truly a pleasure to be back with you again today. Um, to share a little bit more um, from research and some passionate things. And I was laughing, I was going to take your mic from you. I wanna be one of those people who can speak with a mic in her hands, but I talk too much with my hands, so I apologize, the, um, only lavaliers probably, or, or, or panel mics for me, otherwise I might throw your mic and your technology away, we don't wanna do that. <laughs> Princeton will never let me come back if I destroy their technology. So, let us begin today and actually I am super excited to know who was in the room to see all the different cohorts and then the people who just signed up for the forum, all of the folks who are not in a cohort, I also want to give a shout out to you because, you know, woohoo! <laughs> to the ungrouped group thank you, now, <laughs> but it's always exciting to know why people come to these particular spaces or what is bringing them and what are they getting out of it and I'm actually excited about the segue you gave about pedagogy because today is more pedagogy oriented. So, my new project or and we'll talk about it a little bit more, is really focusing in on teachers, going back to, in some ways, my first love. I always tell people, I started out as an electrical engineer a long, long time ago, Um, but that wasn't necessarily my first love. My first love was when I started teaching math and science to middle schoolers, and so I left electrical engineering, much to my father's chagrin, um, because I was going to school on his Cadillac money, and um, (laughs) he was saving. And I was supposed to be a return on investment. Um, And then I decided to teach, and then I decided to go into ministry. He was like, you know, your income is going down exponentially. (laughs) Um, but at any rate, I return to a love of teachers and focusing on um, what happens in the classroom, but also the people who are called. And, and I include youth workers most of the time in that, under that umbrella, and that rubric of teachers, of, of people who are called to engage or to, to share in the learning environment and endeavor. So we're gonna talk a little bit, um, the title of this lecture is No Leaders Here. You'll get probably two thirds of the way through um, the actual reference of where that, that quote comes from. But we're gonna learn some lessons, youth worker lessons and teacher lessons from unlikely radicals. So I've been spreading the gospel of positive youth development and its significance for ministry for years now. I, um, and for those of you who haven't heard or don't know, positive youth development theory starts with the basic premise that children and youth are much more than problems. This is based on years of research out of the medical and then educational fields, and they found that healthy development for children and youth should not be measured by only being problem-free. Now, this was a mantra that was created in the 1990s. Now, all of you who were just born in the 1990s, keep it to yourself, <laughs> uh, but it was something that came out of the 1990s, it was a mantra that says, problem-free isn't fully prepared. And then about a decade later, a woman by the name of Karen Pittman, who had started that mantra, modified it to say that problem-free is not fully prepared and fully prepared is not fully engaged. So this early movement was reminding us and laying the foundation or the groundwork for the types of youth engagement in their own development, in their families, in their communities, and the world that so many of us have come to value and at times take for granted. So we're 30 years in, ironically, and I'm not sure we've fully lived into this positive youth development movement, particularly when it comes to youth ministry and youth theology. So, but I've been trying to spread this gospel, trying to remind youth workers and educators and pastors that young people are not only more than problems, but that they are capable of and ready to engage rich and rigorous theological truths and deeply complex social issues and communities. And so over the years of doing this work, I've been accused of several things. I've actually from time to time been accused of being too hopeful of not only seeing the glass as half full, but of seeing the liquid inside as magical, even living water. And it's true, because I am hopeful, and I do see living water when I look at youth and young adults and even when I look at this room, because I actually believe in young people, and I trust their inherent worth, their God-given creativity and their capacity to transform the world and the communities around them. Now, a few years back, I embarked on a new research project That's what us academics do from time to time, we have to do it from time to time to keep our jobs. And also possibly because we get tired of being beat up on for being too hopeful and things like that. And so I begin to shift my research slightly away from just youth development and engagement to look more generally at methods of social change and communal engagement that were steeped in Christian faith, and particularly for me, steeped in the African American church or churches, and their long, though not always consistent history of working for social change e- even long before the civil rights movement and so this research into the pedagogies and practices <coughs> of social change movements led me to an amazing but often um under celebrated teacher and civil rights leader Septima Points at clark now clark is and might appear to be an unlikely figure and inspiration for a talk on youth ministry, as she was a senior citizen, if you will, before she came to prominence, before she began to really work on, a national, on national civil rights issues. But as I researched Clark, I found that she was a woman of deep faith and conviction. And Clark, though an unlikely radical and an unlikely youth worker, dedicated her entire life to teaching children and youth and then later adults in the primarily rural South, in Charleston, actually outside of Charleston, South Carolina, how to read and write and to engage their communities. And she writes this of her own work. Read with me, or reflect on this as I read this. I am a Negro, born black in a white man's land. My name is Septima Clark. I am a teacher. I have spent nearly all my adult life teaching citizenship to children who really aren't citizens. These words, and it came out of like a quick little newspaper, like I did archival research um, and I love by the way combing through old papers in Charleston, South Carolina. If you ever get a chance to do archival research, go to Charleston, even if you don't even have research that's there, just go because the food is great. Now, but, and the people are kind most of the time but it was in this little pamphlet Champions of Democracy it looked like something they put together maybe as a flyer like a little you know kind of ditto sheet thing and inside was this couplet this poem that she had written to describe her work and to kind of with pictures and like black and white photos of what it was that she was doing but these words interestingly enough became a helpful synopsis of the tensions and the struggles of of the work of many African-American educators and activists, and educators around the globe who are trying to do truly transformative work. Clark's work pushes um, us to wrestle with the realities of both the extremely slow process of working for social change as well as to remind us of the tremendous faith and commitment and effort needed to keep working even when she knew that the basic skills and rights that she was pushing for were in direct opposition to what the dominant society desired for her and for her children and family, students, and community. Her work stands out for me not simply because of how long and hard she worked for justice, because she has a career of over 40 years, um, and then, like she, because she gets to live to a ripe old age, which also is ironic and interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about that. She's one of the few civil rights leaders who gets to actually die old. Um, but I'm excited about her. I was drawn to her because of the methodologies that she used for community engagement and transformation. But, but for a minute first, though, I want you to note looking at this couplet that Clark doesn't say that she spent her life teaching literacy. She doesn't say that she spent her life teaching basic reading and writing, even though that was part of it. Basic reading, writing, and arithmetic were part of her curriculum, but teaching literacy was not her starting place, nor her ultimate goal. Her goal was much broader, much higher. She believed she was training people for citizenship. She was training leaders, and I want us to keep that in the back of our minds as we look at what she's doing. So part of my research, by the way, everything I researched and most hopefully good academics and good professors do this as well. We want, we're so excited about what we're doing, we want to teach a class about it at first. Like, because I need some people to talk to me about the things that I'm studying, and so I I always set up a class that goes along with whatever I'm researching. And so one of the classes that I teach that comes out of this research is a seminar called Radical Pedagogy. And interestingly enough, one of the, back when I started my first seminar in 2013, I think it was at Yale, (laughs) I started having my students read this blog. Ten top ten reasons Septima Clark was a badass teacher. Now, beyond being, you know, a little bit taken aback that I might say badass in a seminary, most of my students were curious about why I would start with this lesser known, if not completely unknown, figure from the 1950s civil rights era because most of the students, and by the way, there's no shame in this, I'm the same way when I start perusing course catalogs and things like that, they read the syllabus, they read the description, and they were excited and attracted to the other teachers and figures that I was including, such as Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks or even Saul Alinsky. But they didn't understand why I was going to bother them to talk about this old lady named Septima Clark. But Septima Clark was not a key figure. Not like these others, not like Frary, not like Alinsky, not even like bell hooks. And even during the civil rights movement, she often did not make headlines. We're only more recently reclaiming kind of her legacy and her work. She was the epitome of what I'm calling an unlikely radical. Or at least that was how she was perceived initially, how my students viewed her initially, but also something that she learned to capitalize on while she was doing her work during the civil rights movement. Because it's interesting, radical leaders don't just emerge when they're 50 or 65 years old. But we saw or can see, if you look through her life, many aspects of activism and commitment to social change long before she gets fired from the charleston public schools for refusing to conceal her naacp membership in 1956. so historian katherine sharon uh, writes that this firing inadvertently freed clark to devote her full attention to the issues confronting southern black communities it's in the mid-1950s that clark after spending almost 40 years working in rural segregated schools and then fighting to teach in the city segregated schools. And I need you to understand that segregation had multiple layers in the South. And, and most people don't understand this, that there were actually only white teachers allowed to teach in black segregated public schools in Charleston because those were the good schools, and then the black teachers taught in segregated black schools in the rural country. So she was teaching in Johns Island, and at the time she started there, she was in a one-room kind of schoolhouse, things that we think happened way, way back in the day, with like a potbelly stove and multiple age groups and only a little slip to kind of like shuttle, like boat to take her from Charleston proper out to John's Island, they hadn't built the roads up, they hadn't built the bridges to go out there um, now. And there's still parts of the South that are kind of isolated culturally and economically and resource-wise because of these kind of infrastructure issues. This is where she was working and and living and and protesting. And Clark begins to articulate, though, her pedagogy of citizenship working um, years later after she gets fired through vehicles like the Tennessee Highlander School and later through the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Now, so it's from this, if you will, ironic place, or this position of presumed respectability and unlikeliness that Clark is able to create the most change. And part of it is because no one would expect this grandmother figure to be agitating. So she was able to travel all over the South with the driver, because she didn't ever learn to drive, but she always had a car. Gotta love that. I'm just saying, things, life skills. You may not be able to drive, but you gotta have a car. Um, so she's able to travel all over the South, recruiting and training and raising money, and people just didn't expect this of this woman. Now, interestingly for me, um, and her legacy is so powerful, but it's it's one of those things that you have to kind of go searching for. So the Citizenship Schools, by the way, was a program that never really had a high profile. Um, but. Most civil rights leaders refer, reference it in terms of its ability to kind of train grassroots leaders. Um, I, I want to go quickly to the other quote by, um, to another quote by Andy Young. Andrew Young says, if you look at black elected officials and people who were political leaders across the South now, and he's talking like in the 2000s, uh, um, he says it's full of people who had their first involvement in civil rights in the citizenship education or citizenship training program because it was a kind of a train the trainer model where you would teach one and then they would teach another group and then they would teach another group and so it spreads like wildfire so that you had by the end of this approximately 2,500 African Americans who had taught, not been taught, had actually taught basic literacy and political education classes for another 10,000 or so more of their neighbors. So it's this interesting kind of model and this is what she's doing all over the South, all over going from rural Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, with these particular different citizenship um, education models. But here, like and for years now, I've been going through and lovely, loving my time being able to mine some of the published and unpublished writings of Clark as well as the secondary sources from her over now 65 years of work as an educator and activist and the sources begin to help me understand her pedagogy and I'm not going to be too heavy-handed today trying to help you draw the dots between what she was doing and what you can do but you are bright and brilliant people so I'm going to trust that you can see some of the connections or the places where there resonances between her pedagogy and some of the work we might be called to do as youth ministers and youth pastors and workers So let's look at Clark's pedagogy. Interestingly enough, for me, in my assertion that Clark was an unlikely radical goes far beyond her age or the way that women and minorities and older people are often overlooked and and presumed ineffective or innocuous. But it's unlikely, I also see it in some ways as a descriptor for her pedagogy. The way she does things and her methods are not the ones that I would immediately point to as like, these are radical methodologies or these are, this is a, the essence of a radical pedagogy. Instead, when I studied Clark's pedagogy and their system of social transformation, I was amazed by its simplicity, and yet its effectiveness. And it's interesting that generations later, we're still trying to figure out, well, what's the right thing to do? And we've sometimes failed to, to learn from the, the simple, basic models of folks like, um, like Clark. So in my assessment, and others who studied her work might come up with a different set, but the three things that were essential for me out of her pedagogy were that it's practical or pragmatic, that it is improvisational, and that it is communal. So let's start and we'll break down each one of these. In a word, Clark's educational agenda with both children and adults was pragmatic. Clark's experiences in the rural Jim Crow South helped her to see that many of the adults and youth lacked basic skills and the confidence to fully participate in society. And so she started there. So instead of starting with the standard educational curriculum established by the dominant society where you would have readers that say, see Jane run. Jane and John are going to the park with their dog named Skip. Those readers were not going to be the things that helped a sharecropper who was already 50 some years old, beat down by society, learn literacy, not be invested in it, not be excited about it. That was not going to be the type of material that you wanted to use with an adult learner. Instead, Clark saw the need to teach basic literacy and arithmetic using things like voter registration documents or literacy tests or bank vouchers and checks and tax bills, to name a few, as the curriculum and the activity sheets. She also taught civics. Do, do, do any of you remember civics class? Do they still teach civics in school? It's not as universal as it was probably a generation or three ago. But civics was interesting where you actually had to learn the branches of government, where you had to learn what it meant to have a participatory democracy or how legislation was kind of passed. But in rural Jim Crow South, to teach basic arithmetic and literacy to these adults and young people, Clark started there. She's like, one of the major things that we're doing here is to offer an overview of what it means to be a citizen what it means for you to understand how the government is structured and how elected officials directly impact your day-to-day life. It's ironic, by the way. I was looking through most of her resources and none of it or very little of it had to do with national politics, but there was a whole lot about local government. Because I think Clark understood that a mayor or an alder or a county clerk had a lot more power over what was going to happen, whether or not you were going to get to register to vote or whether or not you were going to get your property bills done right, more so than anything that was happening in the White House. So, Clark was teaching people what they needed to know to survive and thrive in their current context. And of course, when I teach this material, I ask my students, when we're exploring Clark's work today, whether or not we have consensus over what are the practical skills or the types of practical skills that people need to navigate society today or even just the u.s context today and who's teaching those skills are we teaching them can we expect that they're happening in public schools clark clearly had no expectation that they were going to happen in the segregated schools of, of the south but do we have that expectation that in order for us to have educated citizens or people who are equipped to participate in democracy and in society and to to thrive, that they're gonna get that in the education that we offer them? And if we say, no, it's not happening there, who's teaching it? Now, of course, it's not a rhetorical question because I'm talking to a room of youth workers and you know how your mom would always ask you those questions of like, now who's gonna clean this up? That was not a question of really, we don't know, let us ponder who might come in here and clean this up. That was typically a directive of who's teaching this might be an invitation or an instruction that we might want to consider what our roles might be, should be, ought be in this work. And, and I've seen different things, by the way. There, there are places and ways where some of this practical literacy is being taught or that we're wrestling trying to figure out what's included in political literacy or economic literacy. And even having conversations of like as a youth worker, should I teach kids about credit? Should I teach them about basic finances? Should I teach them about what they spend their money on now might actually affect you know, what they are able to do or what they what brands they support or don't support might like say something about what's happening in the world or even the reality that Walmart might be the only store in your neighborhood and you aren't living in a bougie enough community to be able to boycott that. And what does that say about us or about our society? Interesting always questions, but also other things like teaching people how to get a driver's license or how to fill out a job application or how to you know, deal with the Know Your Rights campaign or passing out and having the talks that we don't want to have talks with. Brown and black um, young people, when we have to teach them that when you get stopped by an officer, this is what we might need to do. Are there other skills or even things like ESL? Are we offering and providing different types of things that allow us to, to survive or thrive in our current society? But the next part of her pedagogy is that it's improvisational. So an improvisational pedagogy, by the way, just need to put a couple caveats out here and a couple definitions out here, is neither meant as a pejorative description nor is it imposed superficially. Clark actually used this description herself. For example, she was given a lecture at Howard University in 1974. And Clark offered a comparative study of education among whites and blacks in South South Carolina. And she writes in one word that prior to 1954, and to the decisions that were coming um, legally out of that year, black teachers had to improvise. That was what she wrote in the margins of her notes. She goes on though to outline that black schools and teachers had limited material and no equipment. And even when there was a quote unquote book rental program, parents, most parents couldn't afford that. And so you still had a group of, t- of students who didn't have what they needed basically to, um, to operate in the classroom. But you juxtapose that against the white teachers who had things as she writes workbooks and a variety of books or even access to a library. Imagine that you are legally yeah. cut off from the resources that you would need in order to try to make improvements in your own life. Systems are designed to get the results that they did. so anyway here it's, it's interesting though and I mean there are things that we have started to take for granted even when we look at quote-unquote bad schools now versus good schools are things that we take for granted like paper and pencil and textbooks um, that Clark and many of her her fellow teachers were having to kind of figure out how do we make this work for our students and so interesting for me And even within this context, I I was cautious initially to call or describe Clark's pedagogy as improvisational, even though that's a word that she used, because it has such double meanings, and often a devaluing of improvisation, which can be derided as not prepared or off the cuff. And describing for me Clark's pedagogy as improvisational does not indicate a lack of training, preparation, or experience, in fact, I'm trying to argue that it's the exact opposite. She had to be more trained and more prepared such that in that moment when she encountered challenges, she actually had the skills she needed to improvise. So interestingly enough, it's, it's important for us to not overlook the skill, the care, the wisdom, and the courage that it takes to improvise. To actually risk trying something that one has not done before, seeing if it will work, and being brave enough to go with it if it does, or change if it doesn't. Unlike most top-down educational reform or generic philosophies of transformation, improvisational pedagogy is flexible. It is open to risk. Improvising includes the willingness and ability to create using whatever is available. One of the gifts and legacies of African Americans is an ability to improvise, to make do, to create or transform the limited things that are available into something amazing or spectacular. Hence the image up here. Most of you can see or uh, you can't see the quote in the bottom of the credit. This is a, a quilt um, from an African American quilt ma- making called Improvisation. It's from a San Francisco craft and folk art museum. But quilting often were these improvisational art forms where you took the scraps of what you had, pieces of cloth, and by the way, my favorite thing when you see a good quilt is to look at the back. Because my grandmother used to make quilts and they were often quilted on the back of flower sacks or other types of things where you're not like, you know, you didn't go out and buy a special backing, you used what you had and, and then layered it with different things to, see, to make something that was now beautiful that's now in the Smithsonian. But there were things really just designed out of love and a little caretaking to try to keep your families warm. So interesting thing for me, Clark's pedagogy and her early teacher experience is no exception to this principle because improvisational quality often gets highlighted in terms of using like, these limited resources to create amazing things. And we think about it often with, with cuisine. Like you know you're a good cook, cook if you can improvise. If they give you a box of stuff and you can say, well, let me see what I've got. So I've got to have extreme skills if you give me a piece of pig fat and some, 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 some field greens. And I have now made something for you that you have now like, wait a minute, that's Swiss chart with a, a little bit of. Um, yeah.
0: so. <laughs> but there's a
1: way also, even with jazz and scatting and freestyle, and even I dare say preaching, in which improvisation are skills that we don't say are just off the cuff, but are highly crafted art forms. And when we look at pedagogy, Clark is pushing it this way as well. She's saying, here I am, uh, and when you see her, would see some of the, the curriculum that she's using, or the way that she's going in and saying, well, wait a minute, this hasn't worked here before. Let's let's just kind of trace something on the board and see if it's gonna work. Or even to put up on a, a, a blackboard, because they still had to have chalk, by the way, y'all fancy um, yeah. with these whiteboards. Um, and just write the word citizen and spend the entire day trying to unpack what it meant or what skills were required and have that to be one of our, her strongest lessons. So it's interesting and I appreciated this idea of capitalizing on what was already available but it also meant for Clark taking time to cultivate the human resources or the people power. And so Clark improvised in order to create what we would call student-centered learning now or student-centered learning community but also to cultivate leadership among the common folk, employing them first as teachers, and then as a cadre of organic local leaders and change agents, which brings us to the third dimension of her pedagogy, that it was communal. So connected, of course, with the attentiveness required for improvisational pedagogy is the necessity and joy of connecting with actual people. Clark and her fellow teachers are credited with having higher success rates in the rural South and in rural South Carolina than national literacy programs with proven national track records. They were more successful, though, because they valued the dignity of the people. For example, Clark championed participatory pedagogy by designing lessons which took seriously the desires of the students and what they wanted to learn. As a rule, she selected teachers who would never consider themselves superior to their fellow learners. Interestingly enough, and it's always interesting when you read through history and you recognize like the intra race and class issues that are there. Clark did not primarily use other certified teachers to be part of this group. Because in the black community at that point, teachers were already an upper class. They were a professional group and already had developed or internalized some of the you know, racism and classism against other sharecropping, uneducated, illiterate, fellow African Americans in the rural South and there was tension often. And they didn't want to also risk their good job or their professional status to get involved in this type of activism or this type of work. So instead, she was using primarily hairdressers and barbers and daycare workers and other people that she could find um, who had maybe a, a store or something like that because she said she found that these were the ones who would never ever consider themselves superior to their fellow community um, members. So she, she's using these student-centered pedagogies long before they were the norm. Clark was employing them. She was moving towards adaptive, personalized learning goals and outcomes long before we knew anything about IEPs or things like that. But Clark was also embodying the skills which later educators reflect on, such as Bell Hooks when Hooks describes the social transformation and empowerment that her teachers were undertaking in their efforts to educate young African Americans pre-integration as they were participating in what Hooks calls education as a practice of freedom. It's there or in this communal pedagogy and genuine trust of the people that I found some of the most resonance with our work or or where I resonated most with with Clark's work as a youth worker. Clark, I found, or I hope, was a little bit like me, or maybe I was a little bit like her, (laughs) in that she actually trusted the people. She actually believed in the people that she was working with. She believed in their capacity for change and their ability to lead it among others in their communities. She was interested in ameliorating problems, but she was also trying to prepare an entire group of people to become lifelong participants in their own communities first as voters, then as homeowners, and community organizers, and educators, as church leaders, you name it. She was like, we don't just have one issue that we're working. She was not a single issue organizer. She was actually trying to raise up an entire generation of leaders. And Clark, of course, encountered tremendous resistance from both the obvious places, but also from well-meaning colleagues. So she tells the story of struggling to win over some of the male leaders in South Carolina. In this picture, you have Esau Jenkins, the African-American man, and Miles Horton, who's the leader of the Tennessee Highlander School, just for reference. But she struggled to win over Esau, who was a leader on John's Island. He drove a school bus. He owned a, a store. He was a primary figure. And later, they actually got him to kind of run for office. He didn't win, but he got every black vote in that county which meant something because it told them that, wait a minute, if we get more, you might actually win. But what was interesting though, is that they were having a strategy meeting and yesterday we talked about that all good organizing and activism doesn't just happen when you protest off the cuff, but you got a plan. They were having a strategy meeting and Jenkins was looking at a map and they were trying to figure out where they were going to go to recruit and he goes and he looks at this map and he hastily with a blanket of sentiment says, there are no leaders there. We don't even need to go over there, because there are no leaders over there. And of course, Clark was livid, as only a good Southern black grandmother can be. But operating within some of the gender and age constraints of the time period, she didn't directly challenge Jenkins, but she gives Miles Horton credit from. And she says, you had to give Miles the credit for B. Like, she pushes Miles, because she figures she can work Miles to get to Esau. But you got to love, like, what I call this patriarchal bargaining that she does in most of these these opportunities. But she works this kind of, like, backroads to convince Esau that he's got to step back from this blanket assessment that there are no leaders there. Because what she wanted him to see and she says, she, and she, this is the direct quote, she says, I think Esau wanted to teach them, teach people how to do things, but we needed to teach others how to change themselves. So Clark also, by the way, this wasn't the only person she ever called out. She also called out other key male organizers that we know from civil African-American um, civil rights in the 1950s, such as Aaron Henry and James Bevel and Amzie Moore. She called them out for not being able to come together and work for the common good. But she also was calling out young organizers, like people like Bob Moses and um, Jim Foreman, who would go into communities and try to take over and not involve the people. And these critiques that she would launch against, against these <laughs> popular, wonderful, charismatic, black male leaders were because for her, they were trying to do quick work, but not the lasting and effective work of actually training the people that were there. And so if you go in and try to take over the community, you look good for a day. But when you leave, is the community changed for the better? But, but, but wait, this idea that there are no leaders there or there are no leaders here should make us cringe. And most of us do cringe at this narrative and of the audacity of someone to put down an entire group of people or an entire area of town. But often we do this in less blatant ways in our own work and in our ministries with youth and young adults. We often come with our best made plans of doing ministry for youth And we often come short of that crucial transformative step of beginning to see them as capable and as leaders right now. From Clark's pedagogy, I'm not arguing that she simply saw people as leaders and then poof, miraculously, they all started to, to, to work and lead with no help and no scaffolding and no training. But from Clark, we see that she invested a great deal of time and energy in this training work, and in in teaching them how to teach and train others. And in this way, entire communities and many pockets of the American South were transformed for the better from this one grandmother, unlikely radicals, work. But all of this work rests in many ways on this one crucial idea and radical belief in and trust of the people that she was working with. Clark is credited with saying, I believe unconditionally in the ability of people to respond when they are told the truth. Think on that. I believe unconditionally in the ability of people to respond when they are told the truth. Now of course, I put this quote on the board and I ask my students to to talk amongst themselves and tell me what they think about it and year after year, semester after semester, I get amazing soliloquies about how this is not necessarily true how wait a minute if you just tell the people the truth they are not always gonna be prepared to to, to respond right and 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 I agree but often I smile and I shake my head because it seems that we often want to miss the point or we want to get bogged down in the semantics of a particular statement and miss what Clark was trying to say here and the reality is that the point for for me and most likely for Clark was not that people or young people in our world. Like we're going to get it right. It wasn't that she trusted that they were going to do the right thing or be able to change the world immediately or even that they were going to engage the world around them exactly as she would have envisioned. But her point was that she believed in them. She actually trusted them to try and possibly fail. Her starting place was, this, was that of hope and of trust, such that the work she was engaging in and the responsibilities that she was entrusting to the students in her care, was that she actually held out hope that they could accomplish it. It's amazing, by the way, when a good teacher believes in a student. It's amazing what happens when I look at you or I look at the student who's struggling and I say, you got this, and until you feel confident that you've got this, we're gonna work together to get it. I remember teaching sixth grade for a couple of years and, and always having, by the way, the worst kids, by the way, they're never absent, um, but struggling and then other teachers who had been teaching a lot longer than I had, because I came right out of undergraduate, I was probably 19 years old in the classroom and it was not a pretty look, but these teachers were like, Almita, what is it that you're doing with Joe or with Lily? And, and how was it that you're able to get through to them? And I'm like, I don't think I have anything special going on here, but I had learned, I think, what Clark is trying to teach us, that I actually believed that they were capable, partly because I was new. I didn't know all their baggage. I didn't know that this was the bad kid. All of them were good because they had just come to me, and so I had none of this. I had not had bad experiences with their parents. I had none of the bad experiences with the system that they were working in. They immediately had a blank slate with me and I believed and we worked together. And honestly, also when you're a new teacher, if the kid is struggling, you immediately think it's your fault. So clearly they were not bad. So I was like, okay, I gotta work harder. Because if they're not successful, it must be because of some of the things that I need to be able to do to help them be successful. Because every child should be able to think that they can learn and be successful in your class. And Clark believed that. Now, of course, All of this begs the question of how much hope are we holding out for the youth and the young adults in our programs and in our ministry? Do we actually believe that they are capable? Do we believe that they're already leaders and not just the, we have one young person who sits on every committee in our church leaders, (laughs) stop. We don't really expect them to speak, but they're here. Do we believe that they're already capable of being public theologians, of, of reflecting critically about public issues? Um, do we see ourselves as fixing you or simply cultivating the God-given capacities that have already been placed inside of them? Or, and have we decided as a brilliantly um, articulate, young 16-year-old told me once that we're gonna take the limits off? And that means taking the limits off <laughs> of young people but also of God in order to to help them engage the world and to participate fully in the work that they're called to. So my point here today is not necessarily to convince you that young people should be involved in their communities. Hopefully you already got that. Most of you are already on board with that. But I wanted us to think more about what our part, if you will, should be. And, And for me, what's more pressing is that I'm trying to get youth and young adults into better communities. That last part of of, of Clark's pedagogy stuck out with me and probably thought made me rethink everything that I was doing in ministry and research and teaching. Because if we are going to fully commit and say that we trust young people and we see them as capable and we see that they're developmentally prepared for work and, and advance kind of participation, I also want us to know whether or not young people are being surrounded by the types of community that actually are every day, even when they can't say it to themselves, say that we believe in you, we trust you, we have our hope placed in you, we are working for, um, together with you for your good. See, because what young people don't always get is a community that believes in them, a community of faithful engagers who surround them and help them to make connections between their faith and theology and practices that may push and sustain their work in the world. And so in some ways, moving slightly beyond Clark's communal pedagogy, I'm reminded of the significance of communities of belonging and encouragement for youth and young adults. And for me, I grew up in one of those like small rural churches that was mostly family. And it's a strange place. And by the way, it should not be replicated. I'm not saying everybody should go back and have small rural family churches where everybody knows your business. Um, (laughs) Not helpful. But there was something, ironically, that I gained in this community, and it was unconditional affirmation and love. No matter what I did, the smallest or the largest thing, saying, baby, great job, honey. Oh, you are doing such, and, and, and week after week, old person that I had been around since I came out of my mother's womb, would come and affirm me and my presence in that space. And and I can't imagine, by the way, that there'd be a world in which every child could have a church mother or a group of church mothers or aunties and uncles who would love on them in that way. But there is something that we might need to learn from models like that. And please, by the way, don't go back to your pastors or to anywhere else, we need to have affirmation and we just need to let children stand up and say randomness and clap for them really loudly. (laughs) That's not necessarily what I'm saying. But when they take risk, when they put themselves out there, when they take the initiative and want to do something, are we that type of community that affirms and esteems what's happening in their lives? And so I'm gonna close with an with one story, and actually I closed my, uh, my most recent book with this story, uh, and I was reminded of this young woman. Her name was Bailey, and Bailey came, was, was, was at a conference. I was a conference similar to this. It was a National Youth Worker Conference, and I'm presenting there, and we're sitting in the congregation, and Bailey is part of an urban poetry troupe. And they're coming to present on um, different issues and violence and things like that, it was in Chicago. And Bailey comes to the stage and she's in tears. And we're like, what's going on? And she's in tears because she's ready to present, but her statement is, just didn't know churches like this existed. Because unbeknownst to us at the time, Bailey's troop had arrived at the conference early before their scheduled time to be on stage. And they had sat in and listened to us youth workers and leaders talk about justice issues. Or listen to young people talk about their global health initiatives. And listen to us talk about worship, creating worship services that were radically inclusive based on including people with special needs and leading worship. And she stands up and she's in tears Because what she's tacitly saying is that, I didn't know they existed, but I've been looking for it. And so as Bailey struggled to compose herself before she could share her poem, what she was trying to let us know is that communities that support and encourage young people in justice work, but in who they are and in in ways that are actually attending to what is of concern to them, what they are passionate about or what they are struggling with is necessary. (laughs) Now, of course, I I somewhat tongue in cheek talk about the the fact that Bailey didn't know that means one of two things. Either churches have a PR problem And we have not communicated effectively to children and youth and young adults that we are places like that, or we're not those places. And either one of those should be a wake-up call for us, either that the good work that we think we're about should be better and more effectively communicated and modeled, or that we actually should get about that business. I guess the question or what I want us to, to, to think with or wrestle with is whether it's possible for us to be the types of communities that, again, said so not going to be as heavy handed connecting the dots between Clark's pedagogy, but are we going to be able to be those communities that live into some of these types of, of practical and improvisational and communal strategies and places that affirm, the work and lives of young people in such a way that we actually don't just push them to engage, but actually become the type of affirming communities that they need in order to be sustained in the work and in the faith journeys that they're already on. Thank you.